talks about all ranks have to be united in purpose in order to be successful. And I think one of the things that is about all companies and Sun Tzu, I mean, I, 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 there are two books I would recommend everyone read. Sun Tzu, The Art of War, because it, it actually talks about how, how to keep large organizations together. And then my newest book I was telling Roger about the other day, I've been reading about Sapiens, which oh. is talking about, it's a new, uh, it's an Israeli professor that's talking about you know, mankind and sort of becoming gods and how we actually work in this new era. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Max Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital worlds. Our guest this week is an archaeologist turned telecoms and data center top global leader and a shaker of the status quo. One of his favorite hobbies is to coach baseball, and he's a YouTube music fan, be it with or without you on a beautiful day or a Sunday, bloody Sunday in a city of blinding lights. I'm talking of no one else but Bill Barney, CEO of recently launched Tiburite, chairman and managing partner of Asian Century Equity, board member of ITE, and also a board member of Control S Data Centers, and he's also the host of his own podcast, Digging into the Future. Bill, welcome to GBM. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, you're based in Hong Kong. Hong Kong um, seems to have done pretty well, well, fairly well over the pandemic compared to Europe. I mean, what, what have you been up to over the last 12 months, 15 months? Well, I was uh, I, when I when I uh, sold out of Reliance, I, I had to take twelve months off, um, and uh, during the twelve months, I, I uh, put together a small little data center company that we launched uh, just this March uh, with uh, New World's development, and so we're out uh, acquiring and building edge data centers across the emerging markets. <laughs> I mean, I've seen what you've been up to, and it's quite exciting, and we'll talk about it in depth as well. But first, I wanted to get to know more you. So, I mean, how did an archaeologist became, I mean, I hope you don't mind saying, but became the bono of the digital infrastructure world <laughs> that we live in? Well, I think the, uh, uh, you know, archaeology for me was a uh, was a passion when I was young. And then actually I kept with it. I, I uh, traveled extensively, but I think I found... Uh, when I tried to do it permanently as a full-time job, it, it just wasn't what was getting me excited. And, and uh, so I think what you look at when you're 18 to 22 years old, and then when you realize uh, you have to make a living, and it's not that you can't make a living as an archaeologist, but the reality was I had more passion for doing stuff in, in, uh, in technology. I think actually archaeology, a lot of the stuff we were doing was technology-related at that time. And so uh, it was pretty interesting. And, and uh, I took a job at AT&T and... From there, it, uh, I just sort of uh, went went on my merry way to, to uh, become an executive in the uh, telecom space. <laughs> I mean, but I know you you were very active in the archaeology space, and you still pay a lot of attention to it. Um, I mean, a few weeks ago, we saw Egypt moving all the sarcophagus from one museum to another um, in a show that, I mean, it felt like it was 3,000 years ago, but in the present. What's been the discovery lately um, that you would like to have been part of? No, I, I mean, it's, it's actually, I, I think archaeology has slowed down the last two years. I think partly just because of the COVID, uh, people haven't been moving around as much. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the stuff, I was, it was actually, I was following a lot of the Latin American uh, stuff that was happening in uh, Tikal and, and in 
uh, Chichen Itza and, and uh, I mean, the Mayan discoveries of the last couple of years have actually been more interesting than um, obviously Rome has been and in Italy has been kind of uh, well combed over um, <laughs> over the last few years. And so really it's it's down the, the big findings are coming in the Middle East and Africa and in Latin America where, where you've got areas that have never been seen before. So that's really been the stuff that I did. And I was down and I went to Tikal. Oh, God, it's probably 15 years ago. But it's been a while since I've been to in, into a real archaeological dig. Uh, uh, but it's it, I do miss it, and uh, as I get a bit older, I'll be doing a lot more of it. I think. Well, it could be your next company away day. <laughs> Take everyone to yeah. digging fields. <laughs> um, <laughs> but look, so archaeology looks at the past to get to know us um, and how ancestors and how they lived and how we evolved into what we are today. Do you yeah. think can we look into the past to predict the future? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Technology, it was, it was funny. I was having a, a, a chat this morning with a guy named Dave Coughlin who runs uh, the, the largest uh, provider of, of um, submarine cables uh, around, around the world. And it was, it was amazing. We were talking about 2000 to 2001 and, and about the similarities uh, when the telcos ruled the world, right? And uh, these massive telecommunications companies were the big giants, uh, you know, at AT&T, you had NTT at that time, uh, BT, and, and these guys were the, you know, the, the movers and shakers, similar to what the, the technology companies are today, you know, the big five. And so, yeah, so you sort of do have this sort of um, essentially large players becoming present for a period of time, and then all of a sudden there's a, they all break up and there's a whole, uh, there's a restart, right? And uh, unfortunately, those restarts have been pretty, ugly for the capital markets when they've happened. Um, but, uh, you know, reality is, you know, you can look at 2000, 2001, and there's a lot of similarities uh, back 20 years ago, what was going on now. Hmm. Well, let's hope there isn't a dot-com bubble. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope not either. Uh, I think there were, there's, some, there's, some there's some differences. I mean, the internet back then never made money. Uh, so there are models based on future, you know, revenues and cash flows. Most of these big companies that are now in the space are, are making a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, it is a little different than it was back then. Uh, so I, I think there's not as, not, there won't be the opportunity for a big sea change like there was at that time in the okay. capital market side of it. That, that, that's good to know because we've gone through enough financial crisis <laughs> over the last 10 yeah. years. <laughs> we don't need another one. Uh, no, absolutely look, not. <laughs> look um, speaking about you and your management style as well, like what, how do you define your management style and what experiences, even from architecture, uh, from archaeology, what experiences have defined your current management style? I think I think part of uh, your management style is just being the same person uh, when you're at work that you are at home or, or anywhere else. Right? It's just being genuine, being comfortable in your own skin, and realizing that no one's perfect. Uh, that, that I think as you get older, you realize that uh, you don't have to get everything right, um, and you're not always right. Uh, and that's that's one of the things I think is is, is really uh, important, especially in the technology space, is the ability to to understand. Uh, that humans do make mistakes. You may have, uh, you know, you, the good CEOs will make more right decisions than wrong, but the reality is they will make wrong decisions. Uh, so that's an important thing. And, and be comfortable admitting that you've made those mistakes. Um, and I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, getting to know everybody and, and uh, realizing that uh, a business is really going to be a contribution from many different people and with very different lifestyles, very different uh uh, backgrounds, and that's really how you make a, the chemistry of a of a really good management team. It's it's not about getting 
you know, singular focus type people, but it's really getting a diversity there. And I think that's one thing that diversity is very important because you need that exchange of ideas. And uh, I think that's extremely critical. And that's why I think for my career, I've never had really the same team. And I've had two or three guys that followed me. Like, uh, you know, you've talked to my Lorraine, but, and, and Roger, but some of these, these folks, you know, it, they're very new. And each time it's a new team that we start with. And uh, that's important is to always be changing that team also to get different perspectives. And also share your experience with them. Um, and I think yeah. the, the, the point on the mistakes and making errors, it's an important one. And being able to admit that one has made a mistake, um, that, that is very important, especially for a CEO. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. And the bridge between life, personal life and business, um, yeah. I think seems to be a common theme. Um, but look, you also work in some of the most fascinating and active markets on the planet. Um, and you also do a lot of work in India. You have some, you've done some work in India as well um, in your previous company. What motivates you um, to carry on? Well, I think, I think the, uh, the fun thing about this is it changes every day, right? It's a, uh, um, I started in the computer industry and, and uh, when I, I worked for AT&T, but I was actually in a computer company of AT&T. So I was actually not in the, the traditional telco uh, per se. And I think, you know, you learned then, uh, essentially, you had to read every single day because everything was changing. This was at the beginning of the, the microcomputer and, and uh, you know, essentially Moore's Law. Everything was, was uh, you know, getting faster, speedier. Communications was changing. And, uh, and today, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, our industry it, in the last 12 months has completely changed. The, the conversation you and I are having uh, you and I have done these two or three times before. We've never done them over a video call, right? We never even thought of doing it over a video call. No, uh, <laughs> we would always wait to see in person. Yeah, but but now now we probably will do this all the time, and it's okay, right? But you know this this thing right here is 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 chewing up you know potentially a, a fraction of a fiber pair. It's it's chewing up two servers in a data center somewhere uh, just to have this conversation, and all that is 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 building up this whole data growth that uh, you know we used to see sort of growing at. 20 to 30% a year, you know, during COVID in some of these markets, you're seeing a hundred percent growth in data in month on month. I mean, this is, I mean, it, it, numbers that we hadn't seen since 2000 in terms of growth, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's been phenomenal. Um, and so this industry continues to change very dynamically and, and it will change. And it's interesting. One of, the, one of the points I think that was made this morning, I thought was actually outstanding was that, you know, all this digital infrastructure we put in over the last 20 years, if we hadn't done it, you know, this COVID thing would have been a lot worse. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, a lot, about our a lot economy, of yeah. yeah, the world the world went forward, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it didn't stop. You know, the stock markets are higher today than they were in the beginning of COVID. You know, and, and if you look at everything that's happened over the last two years, if we hadn't put digital infrastructure in, in the emerging markets, most of these kids wouldn't have gone to school. You know, so, I mean, this is this is really the, the change. You know, we, we've impacted, you know, as, a, as an industry, hmm. uh, done a pretty damn good job. And I think people are starting to appreciate it, which is good. I mean, it's a, uh, it's, not, it's not myself, but it's it's the, the industry as a whole. And, and the investment into, into the future has really paid off, I think, in this two years. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see passion in your answer. And I, can, I can actually see you as we record this podcast. So I can see the passion um, in your face. But, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I keep saying that the industry has done amazingly well. Um, in keeping the lights on. And I keep saying we haven't really seen any major headlines of a data center or a telecom cable going down or anything. Um, so we've really, really, really managed to get through. Uh, and like you said, I mean, if this wasn't here, we would have seen unemployment rates going through the roof. We would have seen probably things turn very nasty um, very quickly in the first few months. Um, so it was amazing. But I mean, 
you've also done amazingly well at keeping the lights on during the pandemic, and that's because of your brilliant ideas. So tell me about how do you come up with new ideas? What's your thought process? I think new, new ideas, uh, take Turbidite, for example. I think uh, um, new ideas are an amalgamation. I mean, I've got my, my colleague here, uh, Roger, who, uh, who actually can create uh, <laughs> digital, uh, you, you know, he, he actually can make ideas into visuals that actually uh, are pretty amazing. So there's one thing, it's the strategy and the concept of the company, what you're trying to do. And then it's also how do you, how do you create the face for it? Yeah. Um, and I, I think Roger also deserves a lot of credit for doing that with GCX, uh, our last company. He was, uh, you know, created the idea of, of raindrops, uh, you know, around in a circle, and it was pretty, pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, we've I've been very fortunate to have some very great people around me. Um, where you know, you take a strategic idea, which is let's go out and get data centers at the edge of of all of the major emerging market cities. And then create a, an infrastructure. I've got a very good product team that's actually building a product set. And so, uh, no, it's uh, part of it is just having the right people to to, to bounce ideas off of and, and to actually execute on what you're trying to do and, and also to help you communicate it. Because I think a lot of it is a lot of people have got great ideas in their head, but actually getting it on a paper and then actually into a business plan and then actually raising money. I mean, we went from, you know, essentially a concept in uh you know november october november to you know essentially uh almost a billion dollars of backing uh wow. by march right so it's a uh, you know from from nothing to to and, and now we've got essentially one deal closed and three coming so we could be you know having uh you know well if we close the next three transactions we're probably the 15th or 16th largest data center in asia and if we do the next one after that we go to number five so essentially we're we're on a path to where we could be a very, very powerful force in the industry. I mean, we, we've seen what you've done before. So actually, this does not surprise me. <laughs> That's going so well. And a billion dollars pop up like that. <laughs> I mean, when I say like that, there's a lot more behind it. But it was very quick to get a billion dollars. Um, but look, we, we will talk about Superdites in more detail as well, especially the new data center in Guam and everything. Um, but on a business front, so when you get into a new business or you set up a new business or something, What's one thing that you don't compromise on? What's non-negotiable for you? Well, I think one, one, a couple, couple things. One is you have to have a uh, an ethical and legal standard uh, to what you're going to do. So, you, you know, we, we want to be operating on, on uh, completely legally within all the markets and conforming to all the regulations, I think, is, is the most important uh, thing for us is to never be in the gray area. Because uh, that's that's where you avoid a lot of the trouble, um, you know, and, and especially in the emerging markets uh, where where you know things are grayer, um, and and the thing is to keep that that moral compass uh, that you've got uh, and realize that you can still make money uh, by by doing it at, at, on the up and up. So I think that's you know that's that's pretty critical. But I think the other thing is is to create an environment where people learn, and also the the company is able to adapt. Uh, so you may have business plan one. Uh, that says you're going to do this, this, and this, but you've got to be able to tack uh, as, as the world changes. And uh, this world is changing very, very fast. Um, and so, you know, we're even even how we've looked at Turbidite, initially we thought we were going to do very, very small data centers. Now we're creeping up a little bit. Some of these data centers are getting a bit larger, uh, partly because we're seeing that the opportunity is, is is potentially a little bit bigger than what we had originally envisioned. So these are sort of things that you do, and, and you, you want to have a, a structure in place that's, it's versatile and it allows you to, to, to move with the times. Especially the current times. I mean, yes. there was this recent study from McKinsey that said we've evolved in the last, well, when the study came out in the last 12 months, 
we evolved about seven to nine years in terms of digital adoption. Um, so yeah. I mean, we, we don't live in 2021, we are living in 2030. <laughs> and the infrastructure has to keep up with it. So um, I'm very excited about what you're doing and the whole edge, the market as a whole, um, because I think it's going to be very transformative the way we live our lives, not just for the industry, but the way people live their lives and how they access digital services. Um, speaking of digital services as well, I mean, and throughout your career, you've had several firsts, um, like being Asian Networks, a China Unicorn subsidiary, first foreign CEO. Uh, I mean, there must have been an experience like, like no other. Um, can you share what the experience was like and what it taught you in terms of leadership and, and what other firsts have you had throughout your career? Wow, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that was uh, that was probably one of the more interesting ones. When you're the, uh, it, it, it was more interesting also because I was a uh, at that time, you know, sort of a 30, 33, 32 year old CEO. His first, uh, you know, major CEO gig, and and uh, I was working for a bunch of folks that don't speak English. Uh, that was my boards, um, you know. So that was probably one of the more amazing firsts that I could have. Um, hmm. You know, and and uh, you know, it's it. I look back on that, and and uh, that was sort of the defining. You know, I doing that job was probably the hardest, uh, and they all got easier from there. Um, so you know, I, I don't know what else I've been first at doing. Maybe we've had a lot of cables that were first in different places, new on products and things like that. But uh, you know, as as you go, it's as a CEO, it's it's not just you; it's a team that's actually yeah. done this. And you know, when you when you've accomplished a, a first on a cable or something, the reality is it was really 30 or 50 or hundred guys that did it. It wasn't necessarily you that did it. Um, you know, you may have been the driver behind it, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, most of the accomplishments after that were, were mine with, with a, with a big team, um, that, that actually accomplished a lot. And I've been very fortunate to have some very, very good teams, uh, around me for the last uh, 20 years. No, I know. And I mean, and like you said, some of people, of the, some people of your team, I've actually followed you. Um, and the work that's being done has been amazing. Um, from setting up the companies, from the visuals to the messages, um, to everything. I mean, you're the kind of person that when you go to a presentation, you get to present in a room, we know we'll sit down and listen to what you say. Because um, you also got a very radio voice, which is very good, and we can listen to your voice for ages. And we really learn <laughs> what you're saying. Uh, and believe me, I've been to a lot of conferences and keynotes, and yours are like up there. <laughs> um, but look, before we break, um, just for a quick um, partner message, what's the one thing that um, entrepreneurs need to know today about digital infrastructure? Well, I think, I think the, uh, um, the biggest issue right now is, is uh, um, in terms of what's going to happen in the infrastructure space. It, it, it is going to change. It's going to be, uh, and, and I think one of the biggest things that we're all going to focus on is probably the environment. Um, and, and one of the issues that people haven't realized is, the data growth, um, you know, is largely coming in emerging markets. It's largely consuming coal, uh, you know, and, and you're putting more and more CO2 into the atmosphere. And people think of the internet as sort of this thing that happens in the background, but don't realize the, the environmental, you know, issues that are coming on. And so I think there's going to be, I mean, there's, there's going to be some focus there because I think it's, uh, you know, if, if you follow this pace and the amount of power that's being consumed in these data centers across the planet, it, it, it's going to have a, a real impact. It's going to be much more than automobiles. It's going to be more than, you know, uh, aviation. You're, you're really going to have to think about this stuff. And, and, and I think you'll see changing business models and, and, you know, countries are going to look at how they can put data centers up in the, uh, you know, where places where they can be air cooled to look at things underwater. They're going to do some things that, you know, to try and mitigate some of the environmental impact of this stuff. Cause I think 
although it hasn't, it's not on anyone's radar today, I think in the next five years it will be. And, and that's where I think people are going to get a bit scared. And this is why the reason why Turbidite we think is going to be very interesting is we think that data centers will become distributed and uh, that the larger massive data centers will largely go seeking places that are more environmentally friendly and doing less damage to the earth. And then you'll have smaller data centers that'll be closer to the end users. And, and so the, this will change the way networks are built. This will also change how data centers are built going forward. And I think it, it'll be the environmentalists in some ways and the governments that will start to drive this when we start getting back to a normal way of life. So what's the, um, I'm going to say the way this place um, you want to put a data center in. Are you going to put data centers in the water like Microsoft? In, in where? Uh, underwater. I don't know if it's underwater, but I, you know, I think it's you know, I think there will be a lot of thinking about all this, right? There'll be, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, and the people are going to be searching the world for different things. For example, in the, the Middle East, you create, um, you know, natural gas creates electricity at the lowest, you know, cost in the world, yet it's also the hottest place in the world. And then you got, you know, places like Finland, and you know, where it's much colder, that you could actually keep these data centers. And then, yeah, potentially there's water. You can you can put these things and immerse them into into deep water. I mean, these are things. All these are different concepts that probably will be explored as we get further into this. The reality is, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I look around and I'm spending a lot of time at data centers right now, and, and you realize the amount of uh, firepower that's going into these things, and and we're just seeing the beginning of it. Um, so it, it's going to get interesting. Yeah, just the tip of the iceberg, and then. There's things like DNA storage that might put the entire thing in 30, 40 years time <laughs> when it gets commercialized in my scale. <laughs> um, but um, Bill, before we carry on, let me just uh, say here's a quick message from our partner in Border. Are your onboarding processes built for a world that no longer exists? Emborder is the first experience-driven onboarding platform and is a new way businesses onboard. Inboarder's platform emphasizes the value of human connection and experience, putting the employee at the center of everything we do. With Inboarder, you can turn new hires into highly engaged long-term employees and managers, into onboarding rock stars. We're living in an experience era. Your employee expectations are higher than ever. So don't lose out on top talent and check out Inboarder today. See the description for more information. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Bill Barney. Uh, Bill, we were just talking about your experience and life lessons, but let's now dive into the markets and what you're working on today. Um, let's start with the markets. What's your view on data centers versus telcos? Um, is the telco industry eventually going to be absorbed into hyperscalers, for instance? No, I think uh, I actually think the telecom industry will have a, a niche for a long time because I think the uh, uh, the hyperscalers may play in the fiber space, but I don't think they ever play in the uh, in the wireless uh, or you know in, in that space. Um, and I think the telcos will always own the the end consumer uh, for essentially from a wireless and from a, uh, a fixed line uh, area. I do think that uh, the hyperscalers will creep into uh, you know into the computer uh, industry in many ways. I think cloud is replacing you know traditional mini computers and mainframes. I mean, I think there's those things are gone uh, and they've been replaced. Um, so I do think it's, you know, they are taking, uh, you know, a bite out of a portion of the ICT sector, but not not all of it, I think. Um, and I think data centers, you know, data centers are going to be a critical portion uh, going forward. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, telcos will be there and then there'll be also all of these application providers. 
Hmm. Okay, and then in this in the first part we talked um, a little little bit about edge edge data centers, um, and we've also mentioned some disruptive technologies that are coming, like data centers in the water, data centers. I mean, in space, we're going to put data centers anywhere we need them to be. Uh, but what would you say it's today's biggest disruption, biggest disruption in the data center space? Well, I, I think we've just alluded to. It. I, I, obviously, I think the environmental issues are going to be important down the track. But I think also the uh, the biggest problem in the data centers. If you look at the demographics of where they're located today, the majority of the data centers sit in the developed markets. So they they don't uh, typically you've got nothing in uh, the areas which is essentially where three billion uh, of the emerging markets sit, there is no data center coverage. I mean, it's very, very small. And if you look at it on a per megawatt basis, um, you know, cities like uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia, Saigon are, you know, 90% less uh, coverage in terms of having data center capabilities than a, a New York City or, or a uh, London, for example. Hmm. And, and I think this has got to change over time. So I think there's going to be a very, very big push to do what we call cloud to the eyeballs, which is getting the cloud closer to where the actual users are. And uh, so I think that'll be what's the driver behind edge uh, going forward. Hmm. And I mean, that's going to be a huge shift um, in Asia, especially Southeast Asia, um, where the market is changing so fast. And I mean, mobile adoption, I was, I was reading yesterday about Vietnam um, and mobile adoption in Vietnam is just off the roof. I mean, it grows like, uh, what was it? I think it was 87% sometimes some years. Um, it just yeah. explodes, and they all have access to internet, um, and then the gaming sector as well. It's growing tremendously, and I think that's probably one of the the major internet contacts that a lot of these people have um, in, in Southeast Asia as well, and that's driving a huge new market there. Uh, but speaking of Asian Southeast Asia as well, um, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you're a businessman. You've created businesses, and you just created a new one, um, and you create successful businesses as well. What top three tips would you have for Asian entrepreneurs that want to get into the digital infrastructure space? Um, well, I think first is, is uh, understand where the markets are going. So, you know, I think if, if you want to see where the world is going to go, you, you got to go spend some time in Silicon Valley um, and, and actually see what's, you know, the real, I, I think that's where the leading edge sort of C Seattle and, and Silicon Valley right now are the main places that are driving a lot of the future technology. So first, first of all, I would, I would learn what's going on in the future so you can get three steps ahead. Um, second, I would actually spend some time in the emerging markets and realize that um, what's different on the technology standpoint, whether, you know, what's possible and what's not possible. Because often we take an application uh, or a, a function or a, a way of doing things in a, in a New York City and we think we can automatically turn that around and put it in Beijing and it'll work the same way and people will adapt to it the same way. And the reality is that may not be the case. Um, take Uber, for example. Uber was fantastic in Los Angeles and New York, but when you put it in Mumbai, it, it, it didn't work <laughs> as well, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and just the reality was it was a different way of operating. And, and so there's, you really have to study the local markets, the local culture as well. And understand that because I think it's very easy to, to get caught up in, oh, I can do this in the, in the developed market, so it'll just apply to the other, other markets. So it's understanding those two things. And then the third thing, the most I think, is, is listening to the people in, tell, in terms of what they're telling you. As, as you travel around and meet people in these markets, is, is you know, the answers to technology and where to go is, is often given to you by, by the end user. I mean, if you look at Steve Jobs, he wasn't, it was, a, it was a good engineer, but what, what did he do? He made things simple for human beings and he just listened to human beings and what they were thinking about him and then tried to adapt to how he thought they would 
you know, develop over time. And I think that's comes from listening and understanding. So I think those are the three key things uh, that you need as an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, I, I think it's absolutely simple. And I love the point about the culture as well, because a lot of times we do see business trying to copy and paste their business plan from, let's say, North America or Europe and stick it into South America, Africa, Asia. And th things are different. I mean, cultures are different. The way people do things is different. The, the pain points will be different. Uh, and then the consumer, um, their problems will probably be slightly different. Um, so you do have to adapt. So I really like that point. Um, but so you gave us the tips, but now let's talk about you making use of your own um, advice. So you launched Turbidites. Tell us about Turbidites. How did the idea come up? And also tell us about the name. Where does the name come from? Okay, well, well Turbidite was really about, uh, it really came from talking to the large technology companies and where, you know, you talk about pain points. All of them, their biggest pain point was trying to get to some of these more difficult places. Um, they, they would always tell you, hey, I can get to Singapore, I can get to Hong Kong, I can get to Tokyo. How do, how do I serve, you know, my, my customers in Jakarta? Uh, how, do I, how do I deal with, you know, Bangkok? Uh, and, and the reality was there wasn't really infrastructure there that, that actually can accommodate them. Uh, they largely were, you know, and that was just because the biggest data center providers don't, there was no, nothing to gain by building into those places. So the reality was, uh, you know, they, they were making enough money just putting the next data center in New York or into, you know, Northern Virginia. Why, why bother and, and go through all the difficulties of going to Bangkok? Uh, the reality was, you know, they, they didn't have to to make money. So I think that, that's, that was an area that, that sort of, you know, struck to, you know, to me. And then we looked at the submarine cable industry and, and realized that, uh, the biggest challenge with submarine cables is, is getting them in there. And, and uh, once you're in there, if you could build an incubator or a place where things can meet or, you know, a data center infrastructure that was Western savvy, you would have to have less submarine cables into these markets and you could actually build up the data center capabilities. So the idea of building edge was to essentially avoid having to be so highly dependent on fiber between these locations and you could actually build up caching capabilities. So we, we see these as almost large caching nodes into these places that allow these, you know, these new application companies to come into these markets and not have to serve them from Silicon Valley or somewhere else in the world and spend a lot of money on fiber to do that. So I think that's really what, you know, so Interbidite is, a, uh, is essentially an underwater, it's an underwater uh, uh, landslide. And so the whole concept behind Turbidite is these are these data centers are going to change the way we look at submarine cables uh, and how we actually build infrastructure in the emerging markets. And, uh, you know, we're going to change that entire paradigm. And that's what Turbidite is, is all about. Okay, I, I love that. Like an underwater landslide. <laughs> uh, this is why I like to ask, this is why I like to ask these sort of questions. Like, where did you come up with this name? <laughs> where does the name come from? Uh, and I think that's, yeah, I was not expecting a, a wonder water <laughs> landslide. I like that. Um, but look, um, and you've already said that um, investment has been really good. Um, you're closing up to a billion dollars. We, we've got a billion dollars. Um, I have no doubt there'll be more millions or billions coming uh, in the next few years. Um, you've done recently a deal in Guan to get a presence there as well. There's a few more in the pipeline. Tell us what's in store. I mean, lift the veil as much as you can at this point. Um, tell us what's in store and what's the dream? Like, where, how big is the dream? Our, our, our plan is to build um, in every emerging market that we possibly can get into uh, between essentially uh, the Mediterranean Sea and Japan. So in our view, we will, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll avoid, uh, you know, Eastern Europe for the most part, but our focus is really going to be through the Middle East and all the way through the Asia Pacific markets. And uh, we have uh, projects going in virtually every single emerging market right now. So it's a, uh, it's an, on, to the Middle East. The Middle East is taking a little bit more work. Uh, we've got some ideas there, but I would say we're probably a little further behind in, in the Middle East than we are in Asia right now. We're, we're very aggressively moving in Asia. Uh, I mean, you said you, you, you're going to be the fifth largest player um, in yeah. Asia. How long is that going to take? Uh, it depends on how fast we move. Uh, and, and that's the, 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 well, the opportunities right now are, are um, we, we can uh, accelerate by buying platforms of, of assets or we can build. And in, uh, obviously, for an investor, they tend to make, if we execute well, they make more money if we build it from scratch than if we actually go out and acquire it in most cases. Um, hmm. Just because the, the market makes you pay. If you're in an auction, you tend to pay higher for assets than you would have if you actually built them yourselves. So reality is, uh, it depends on our build, build buy strategy right now. And, and I would say we're, we're sort of 50-50 right now. We're, we're at some places we're building, some places we're, we're, we're buying our way into the market. Okay, well, it sounds very exciting, and I can't wait to see the, the headlines coming out <laughs> of your offices in Hong Kong. Uh, but Bill, Turbidite is not the only um, company you, you're involved with. I mean, you sit on the board of uh, Control Estate Centers, which I believe they provide collocation in India. Um, you're also involved with IT&E, um, and you're also a managing partner of Asian Century Equity. Give us just a quick rundown um, of what's happening in these businesses and what's your role, what you're doing um, at the moment. Yeah, so, so to start with Control S, Control S is, uh, is, is sort of a mature data center company in, in India. They've been uh, largely looking at how they can expand their footprint outside of the uh, outside of India. Uh, obviously, uh, as you and uh, we we didn't talk about it, but the reality is India is in a tough spot right now. It's a uh, it's very difficult for uh, investment to happen, construction to happen. You know, it's in a dark dark period. Reality is uh, these data centers have done very well. It's a, it's a good solid company. It's the foundation. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, if you look at India as a whole, if there's any place that could supplant Silicon Valley in the next two to three decades, it's, it's going to be India. They turn out more engineers in, in the country than anywhere else in the world. And, uh, you know, it's also a fairly open society. And, and so there is, there is the opportunity, I think, there. So I think, you know, it's, it's a very interesting asset. Uh, it's an entrepreneur who's trying to think through his next move. Uh, and so it's been, it's been kind of fun uh, doing that. IT&E is, uh, is a Philippine business that uh, bought uh, the local telco in Guam. Um, and this is actually, it was an interesting asset because of um, Guam has become the, the U.S.'s closest point to Asia uh, from a strategic standpoint. And so what's interesting is it has U.S. laws. And so a lot of the submarine cables that were originally going to Asia that have now run into trouble. So, for example, it's very difficult to take a cable from San Francisco and land it in Hong Kong uh, just because of the regulations that and there's trade issues on both sides. So the Chinese haven't been able to go to America and the Americans haven't been able to come over here. And what that's actually done is moved a lot of these cables to Guam. Uh, and so now they're all landing on Guam and then going from there and fanning into the other parts of Asia Pacific. And uh so it's an interesting place. Um, and, and so, it's, you know, from a telco perspective, it's sort of a, it's a little rock with, you know, a few hundred thousand people all of a sudden, you know, is getting a lot of infrastructure and a lot of focus. Uh, not only is it from a, 
a, a uh, the standpoint of a technology basis, but military. So it's the largest submarine base in the world now is sitting uh, right there on Guam. It's also got one of the largest Air Force bases. Uh, you know, so it's also a it's a military hub for the Americans, um, and it's you know way out in Asia. So it's sort of interesting to watch it evolve. So yeah. and uh, you were saying that in my head was going to um an island also an island but Iceland and a lot of people say that building data centers in Iceland is quite dangerous because of volcanoes and my head was like building a lot of fighting infrastructure in Ireland with such a, a large army base <laughs> you might be putting yourself in the middle of a war zone in the future <laughs> yeah um I mean are you worried about that or you think everything will be uh, fine I, um I honestly I don't think Guam is going to be the, the home of the next war um hmm. you, you know I, I think uh I think actually the reality that we're seeing is that the, the next war may be fought in, in cyberspace versus actually on the, mm. on the battlefield, uh, you know, the way we're watching things happen. But, um, you know, reality is every every place can be dangerous. Uh, you know, my last company, our, most of our assets were through the Middle East and, and uh, the reality of war was, was real uh, and happening all the time, right? So it's, uh, you know, you, you have to build the infrastructure with a view of trying to get as close as you possibly can to where the action is going to be for the, the big over the top players. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do by building into Guam. Mm. Okay. And, and what about Asian century equity? Uh, Asian century equity has largely been my uh, uh, vehicle that I've used to start companies. And then, then typically they uh, moved somewhere else. So Asian century equity is what I used to behind Turbidite in the beginning. And now, now it's become Turbidite and new world. So it's a, mm. uh, um, I would say it's a private equity company that won't, uh, it's not seen as last days, uh, but maybe <laughs> a few years before it really starts working uh, and flying again. Uh, it's hard to run a, a sort of a investment advisory business while you're running a company. Um, and, and one thing I've learned over the years is if you want to spend time with your family uh, and, and uh, you've got to do things besides, uh, hmm. you know, running three companies at once. So it's, it's sort of, uh, from my perspective, it's uh, it will probably be less advisory work and much more, uh, Focus on getting turbidite to the next level over the next couple of years. Mm, okay, and I mean, as we're saying that as well, in my head, I was like, "All right, you're already preparing something <laughs> for the next decades. <laughs> A new company is coming out. <laughs> I can see no, it." No, coming. I, think, I think for the moment, I think we're uh, we're very happy with turbidite, and uh, you know, it's it is these things take a lot of time, and they uh, you know, and, and you want to give it everything you got, right? So it's uh, you don't want to be distracted either. Yeah. So. Um, but look, um, I mean, with Asian Century Equity, we start talking about financial financial um, topics and private equity is doing quite well in the data center space. There's a lot of move, movers and shakers. Um, what's happening in the financial world within the data center space today that when you saw, when you see it, you're like, oh, I did not see that coming at all. Um, what, what, what has surprised you over the last few months or last year? Well, I think one, one, one thing that's interesting is that China uh, has become sort of the most valuable data center market in the world, hmm. even though, you know, to be quite honest, the, the assets aren't great. The growth is okay. Um, so that's been one of the surprises uh, that that's, that's done very, very well. Um, you know, the other surprise is, is uh, you know, fiber has not done, you know, you look at data centers are trading now at sort of 20 to 30 times EBDA. Fiber companies really haven't moved much. They're sort of trading at eight to nine. And, and that's in an era where fiber demand, you know, last year was three times what it was pre-COVID, right? So 
that was another surprise to me, which was I thought that you'd see a little bit of a, a rise in the fiber companies in the, in the last year. And so those are, those are two of the kind of, when I look at the capital markets, uh, and it just seems a bit perplexing, uh, that, that it doesn't seem to be the underlying uh, what's really going on uh, in, in terms of drivers, uh, you know, in terms of playing out in terms of investment. Yeah, that, that, that is quite surprising. Why do you think the fiber guys didn't catch up or at least gone up a little bit more? Um, in the last year, it's interesting. I think it has to do with the. Um, uh, it was actually it was one of the other conversations I had, but I think there was fatigue with you know so many fiber companies have had trouble over the years, whether it be in two thousand, two thousand and one, um, and, and data centers for the most part have avoided uh, getting into trouble um, since in two thousand three. They've been on a nice a nice run, whereas fiber and part of the problem with fiber is you know it. it, it uh, it actually accelerates, you know, the, the amount of capacity you could put down fiber has been going faster than Moore's law, right? So, you know, you think about Moore's law as this geometric growth in terms of compute power. Reality is fiber has actually gone faster in terms of, you know, they went from 10G to 100G and now there's sort of, you know, channels or, you know, terabyte channels inside these, uh, these fibers. And a fiber used to carry uh, essentially one terabyte. Now they're talking 20, 40, and maybe as much as 100 on, on one small piece of wire. Which, so that may be what it is, is the reality is that you're going to be able to keep putting more and more capacity down the same infrastructure, so there won't be the revenue growth. Uh, but that, the reality is right now, there's huge revenue growth, and still these companies are, are, uh, are, not, are not being recognized by investors. I mean, and, and we've also got so many cables being laid down um, to yeah. really just connect all the shores across the planet. So, I, I mean, that, that is quite interesting. That's quite fascinating. I, I hadn't come across that one. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for bringing that up. Uh, but look. People listening to this chat will think, well, this guy is so busy doing his business, so busy doing all the other businesses um, and just just running, just running the business. But the fact is you do a lot more even outside the office walls as well. I mean, you train a lot of kids. I think you've trained about 800 kids um, how to play baseball um, at the Tai Tam Baseball Club. Um, I mean, tell us about the club and, I mean, how many games have you won over the years? <laughs> Are you a good coach? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, it's about 200, 250 kids, not 800. Uh, oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, uh, more, uh, the advito on this one was quite high. <laughs> it was not yeah, a high yeah, yeah. So, so, um, but, um, uh, no, actually, our, our biggest accomplishment this year, we, we just won the... Uh, uh, the Hong Kong Little League. So we were uh, oh. one of our teams, uh, which I coached actually with two other, with my son, my eldest son. So I had my uh, eldest son as a, an assistant coach and we, we actually won. And typically, believe it or not, the Americans don't win it very often here. This is only I think, <laughs> uh, the second or third time in history that we've actually won in 40 years. So it's a, uh, it was a pretty big accomplishment from our perspective. So, wow. you know, I, it's a passion. I love my boys were all uh, baseball players. I was actually a hockey player uh, and a soccer player, not a baseball player. So uh, <laughs> it's been interesting. And, and uh, we've actually, uh, we've got a great club uh, that we've, we've built up here. And it's, it is a way for uh, dads to get away and spend some time with their sons. Uh, and there's very few sports in the world right now where you can, you know, the dads are welcome to come on the field and sort of be a part of the whole thing. And, and uh, so Two hours a weekend or four hours a weekend, you're with your son doing something, uh, something different, and uh, in a team environment, which is, is you know, it's a great way to to grow up together with your kids. I mean, it sounds wonderful, and especially in the last fifteen months, it sounds even more wonderful. And having won as well, <laughs> I mean, an American winning the for the first time in forty years. 
Yeah, no, um, it's been fun. <laughs> um, but look, we're nearly at the end of our chat. So um, I, I could chat to you the whole day. I mean, and uh, I was telling you before, uh, nowadays I chat even more than I used to before. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's the best and worst advice you've ever received? Um, wow, worst advice. Uh, well, actually, the best advice I ever received, I don't know how to go with that. I, I don't think there's any really terrible advice I could really, uh, but the best advice I ever got was from my father. Uh, I went to, to uh, Columbia Business School, and uh, I came out of business school, and I, I'd worked for AT&T before that. And uh, AT&T offered me a job, um, which was 50% lower than a job with Pfizer. Running, you know, I was going to go to Pfizer and be in their IT area, basically design uh, IT behind the drug business. And, and it was a very interesting job. But the AT&T job was to basically go around the world and negotiate with CEOs the uh, settlements between uh, the telcos. So actually going to every country in the world. And it paid so much less. Well, my father said, you know, you've got to think about it three steps further. Once you have that job, you're going to know every CEO in that region of the world. And from there, you can build a business. Um, and that was the greatest advice he ever gave me. And by the way, uh, from a financial standpoint, you know, my, my income doubled and tripled from that year on. So it never really matters. And, and uh, the fact that, yes, I probably could have made more money when I was, you know, 29. But taking that step actually changed my life in terms of what I was able to do and, and also was able to passionately do, um, you know, which was to do international business. And, and it, was a, it was a lucky break that I had to even find... There were only four people at AT&T that had this job. And it wasn't a senior level job. It was a very junior level job, but it was, it had just enormous exposure. And, uh, and you know, sometimes you get lucky and you get good advice. So I think uh, I, I've got to thank my father for that one. He, he basically turned me away from chasing the big dollar and said, go, go chase your passion. So. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's, um, it's a very good advice and it's a very valuable experience because for us to even put something together, we do have to experience um, at the end of the chain and then build it up so you can know what to do and what everyone is doing. Uh, and to me, that's what makes a good boss. It's knowing what each part of the business is doing. Uh, and there's only a way to know that. It's to actually have done those jobs. Um, yeah. So I totally agree. Um, and look, last question. What is your favorite quote? Well, uh, favorite quote. <laughs> and by uh, who? Well... I guess I guess probably you'd have to go to Sun Tzu in the Art of War, and uh, and he talks about all ranks have to be united in purpose in order to be successful. And I think one of the things that is about all companies and Sun Tzu. I mean, I, 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 there are two books I would recommend everyone read: Sun Tzu, The Art of War, because he, he actually talks about how how to keep large organizations together. And then my newest book I was telling Roger about the other day. I've been reading about sapiens. Which oh. is talking about it's a new uh, it's an Israeli professor that's talking about you know mankind and sort of becoming gods and how we actually work in this new era and uh, it also explains a lot of the uh, interesting mentality that we're seeing in America this mob mentality that's come around and, and you know some of the realities of, of what's happened politically and so you know these are but I would tell you right now those are the two when when you think about management I think Sun Tzu and the Art of War is probably one of the great books still to this day uh, to think about um, and, and some great insights in very, very small pockets uh, in terms of how to think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they are wonderful and they do give you some really good insights and ideas um, and advice um, in their amazing yeah. quotes. <laughs> um, Bill, Bill Barney, thank you so much for joining the GBM. 
Um, and I, I hope you had a good time <laughs> talking to us. <laughs> no, it's been fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And um, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Do subscribe to the show and we invite you back again for next week's episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.